This is an ABC podcast. Once upon a time. For familiar words sending us off into tales of adventure, heroism, narrow escapes and lessons learnt. Stories are also a way to capture and pass on to our kids what we know of the world, even to broach the reality of death. Our own and those of the people we love. Hi, I'm Justine Toe for Soul Search on RN and your ABC Listen app. Well, as the hit song from Disney film Encanto goes, we don't talk about Bruno. But in the West, we also don't talk much about death. But take a closer look at beloved children's stories and you'll find they're haunted by death. That's what author Chloe Hooper found in her quest for the perfect book to help her sons grapple with their dad's illness. Along the way, Chloe found that there's something about story itself that proves a comfort in the face of death. The right story can help us find uh, a path through the forest. It, It can help us take our straw and and weave it into gold. And quite quickly I realised that storytelling and and perhaps restoring this situation would be a way to help us through the electricity and, and potential of once upon a time might be a way for us to light the dark. That's author Chloe Hooper. The situation that required restoring was the diagnosis of her partner, Don Watson, the author and speechwriter. He had an aggressive form of leukaemia in 2018. Chloe writes about that traumatic year for the family in her book, Bedtime Story. We'll hear more from Chloe a little later in the program. But now, let's take a look at what it means to be an end-of-life biographer. It's exactly what it sounds like. Journalist Alice Matthews has sat by the bedsides of the dying as a biographer with the Sacred Heart Community Palliative Care Biography Service at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. She's listened to and written down people's life stories to present to them and their families in book form. So I asked her about a tweet I'd seen lately, which said, sitting with the dying is holy work. Did Alice agree? Absolutely. There's something incredibly spiritual about it. I can remember the first hospice visit I did with my first client and I was there with Julie who uh, runs the biography service with Robin and I can remember my client at the time lying in bed and all she did was sort of um, move her hand slightly but Julie just knew to take her hand and then I saw this woman's whole body relax and find this huge peace and comfort and in that moment, I just thought this, that to me felt holy, not necessarily in a religious way, but in definitely in a spiritual way. And we talk a lot in the service about holding space for someone. And I think there is an incredible spirituality in doing that, in sitting with somebody, being with them, and not really having to say or do anything except that. Yeah, I want to ask you more about that holding space. But before we get into that, I think it's important to establish that you know, you volunteered for this. And a lot of people who do this work are volunteers. Mm. So why? You know, what what's going on there? Like, is this something that you always were interested in? Or what brought you to someone's kind of bedside as they're, as they're dying? Well, like a lot of people, I didn't really know this service existed till a friend of mine told me that she volunteered for it. And I just thought it was the most incredible idea. And the reason that 
it interested me. I, I guess there were two reasons, really. One is that I've always been interested in people's stories, particularly older people's stories and sort of seeking wisdom from them. That was my old school motto. So <laughs> I think that really did stay with me. And the other reason was I felt really passionate about um, valuing older people because I felt like I would look at sort of nursing homes and and things like that and feel quite sad about the state of affairs. And I felt like a lot of people, particularly in that demographic, were sort of being shunted and pushed aside. And I thought, what better way to return value to them and, and dignity to, than to sort of sit with them and talk about their life and the value of their life, which hasn't disappeared, but society seems to have let it. Yeah. I think it's all of a piece with the way that we like to keep death at arm's length, really. No one Absolutely. wants to talk about it. Yeah. It's all behind closed doors, particularly in the Western world. My my mum's Filipino and it's a very different story. On the other side of the world, they kind of um, embrace it a lot more and are a lot more hands-on. Yeah, right. So there's a cultural thing happening there too, right? Mm. This this not wanting to go near it. But but tell us about that lady and your experience of her right at the end of her life. You know, what was she like? What mattered to her? <laughs> She was so eccentric and full of stories. Every time we would sit down, she just loved to reminisce. Every time we'd sit down, she'd say, I just love reminiscing. <laughs> and for her, it was not so much about the book at the end of it, because we print out the book and, and give it to the clients. Um, a book once. of the stories, you mean? Yeah, of yep. their stories. Yeah, we print out their physical biography and they get it for themselves or to give to their family. She didn't care so much about the book at the end. She just loved sitting down, telling stories, having somebody listen to them. And they were so fantastic. <laughs> I sort of thought, how can all of this be real? <laughs> and there were some things I had a question mark on. Maybe there was a little too much embellishment, but maybe not. <laughs> she was a lot of fun and she just absolutely loved. One thing I always remember about her is uh, she just absolutely loved Mary McKillop, huge Mary McKillop fan, like just would say, oh, Mary McKillop, <laughs> loved Mary McKillop. <laughs> so it sounds like the stories just tumbled out of her. Um, yeah, they Is that did. always the case? Like, do you have that feeling where, or have you had that experience where people are saying, oh, I have nothing interesting to say? I mean, always. clearly that wasn't the case with, with Everybody um, your first thinks client. That. Everyone thinks, no, no, I mean, what am I going to say? What what's, what have I done in my life? And there was this um, quote that I've always sort of held on to that I heard at uni from a lecturer and it was by Studs Terkel, the oral historian. There's no such thing as ordinary, only the uncelebrated. And I really, really believe that. And I think a lot of the time people sit down and think, oh my gosh, my life has been so long and big and full and where do I even start? And so for a lot of people, we start from the beginning from their childhood and we build it that way chronologically. With my first client, it was a different story. I think she had a lot of a lot of trauma in her childhood and, and things that she would have rather left out. So for her, her biography wasn't something that was like, here this is when I was born and here's my life mm. in in a on in a timeline. For her it was very much like these are the stories that have made my life. These are the places I've traveled. These are the people that I love. These are my cats. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And so how do you navigate that? Because clearly you have some clients who have that sort of biography. And so how do you work out not to go there? Do you know what I mean? Because you want to, if, if you want to deliver this book that's told in the first person um, and that is someone's narrative as they would like to tell it, 
you as an author need to kind of negotiate some mm. sensitive areas. Yeah, I think I guess we're more of a transcriber in that sense. And the way that I ask questions if I'm in a normal conversation or, or in an interview, I, I do journalism as well, it's very much to feed my curiosity, the curiosity of the audience. But the way you ask questions when you're sitting with a client is not necessarily about asking so you can learn more. It's about asking to help them tell more. And what they tell is up to them, I guess. And we just have to be very sensitive to that. Yeah. I mean, this kind of seems to connect with what you were saying before, this idea of holding space for people and and in some ways bearing witness, I guess, to their life. Absolutely. Tell us what it does to people to have someone pay that kind of deep attention to them. I think it's a grand validation. When I look at the clients that we work with, a lot of the time their days are taken up with medical visits and people talking about their health. And then all of a sudden you have a person that comes in and says, tell me about you, tell me about your life, tell me about what you valued. And then they get to relive that themselves and and I guess be reminded of, of everything. And I think for some of the clients, it's certainly a great comfort knowing that that story is going to be taken down and passed on and that they're being remembered in in the way that they choose and the way that they want. Wow, that's fascinating. And can I ask, do you wind up, I mean, because in the process, you've become someone's confidant, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're choosing to share with you. But do you find yourself sometimes becoming almost a confessor? And what I mean by that is that there are the stories we like to remember about ourselves and mm-hmm. remember about our lives. But surely at the same time, we're dealing with, I don't know, regrets or um, sadnesses, relationship troubles, does that kind of come into the picture as well? Definitely. And I think that just by virtue of of speaking and being listened to, you end up saying a lot more sometimes than you maybe even intended. And what we do after each session is we transcribe what they've said. And then the, the following session we go through and we say, hey, this is like, sometimes I'll read it or they'll read it. And they might read back on something and and say, oh, look, I'd rather not put that in or like this is sensitive to other members of my family. So I would rather take that out. And then, of course, it gets real when it comes to, you know, the bigger questions that you kind of get to in the end, like what do you want to be remembered for and what do you want to pass on? They're often difficult, but also very enlightening conversations. Oh, gosh. And can I ask, Alice, some sessions, were you just sitting there just weeping? Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And and you sort of cry along <laughs> yeah. with, the, with the people because while they're doing an amazing thing, it's a very difficult thing and you sort of bear witness to this hardship that they're facing and the, and the truths that they've sort of had to confront and and the realisation of the families that they leave behind, I think, is the biggest and, and most difficult thing to bear witness to. It, it depends what family you're working with as well. There are some clients that I've had that are, are old and um, are in, in some senses ready and other clients that have, um, you know, been, been burdened with a, an illness they never thought they would have and feel like they're leaving far too soon. And, and those ones are very difficult. But I see so much value in them being able to pass their story on, particularly after they've passed. I've had families that have ha- 
you know, held on to that biography as something um, really important and really special to them. And, and while the process has been hard, down the track we've heard from them again and and they've said, oh, look, I'm just really happy that we've got this because, you know, our child took it into their preschool and they were able to share about their parent um, and, and have the language for that when they mightn't have had it otherwise. Yeah, I'd like to ask you more about that, if that's okay, because I think we do imagine that it's people who are quite um, elderly or older or who, who've had the time to live like mm. a full big life, but clearly not all our lives work out like that. And mm. I'm sure you've seen parents, sounds like, um, yeah. who've, who've been at, um, at, in this situation and they're leaving behind a very young child, sounds like. Mm. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. Um, gosh, it's hard to know where to start. The The biography service started working with, I guess, yeah, younger clients who had children. And one of the things that emerged was a need to find the language and ways to pass it on to their children. Because the biographies we were doing were, you know, like pages and pages of Word documents long. And that wasn't something that, you know, a, a three or four-year-old or an eight-year-old could read. So, we started working with clients to sort of adapt those biographies and um, put them in a sort of format and a language that a younger child would understand. And do you mean almost to the level of once upon a time, like in um, that sense, like in a, in a format like a, that would work for them? Exactly. Sort of like a, a storybook, like this was dad and basic words to describe their job. For example, if, if it was an artist, like dad was an artist, he painted the world that he saw and people loved his drawings and things like that. Another way that we did that was a series of quirky questions, which were, oh gosh, I don't know how many there are. There's certain, there's like a hundred questions on different quirks about your personality, like which way do you put the toilet paper and was your room messy and <laughs> what's your favourite food, what foods do you hate? And I had um, one client who actually answered all of the questions. <laughs> so that was that was quite a volume. <laughs> right, right. Yes, because it's true, isn't it? Because so much about a person isn't just the, I guess, surface details of what they did for a living or um, who they were in their family, but what kind of strange idiosyncrasies did they have? Because that all gives texture, right, right, to the life. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And that was incredible. Like I can remember that family was so incredible. And they also had a way that they wanted to describe to their daughter about what was happening. And it was um, very much a kind of circle of life explanation that they came up with for their child. And I can remember sitting in the room with them and um, she she read it out to her husband. And that was one of the moments where we all sat there in tears. And I didn't quite know how he would react. He um, wasn't verbal at that point. Oh, wow. And, um, and I just, we all sort of waited a moment. And then we saw that he'd typed, that was beautiful. Mm. Um, and it was just, that was one of those moments where you feel the entire weight of the, of the heartbreak, but also the relief. Mm. Was that the um, the child who shared the book with others and then you, you heard back the effect? Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. Tell me about, I mean, you already started talking about this, but tell me about the, the, the clarity people have at, the, at this time. Like maybe with this dad, you know, he's not going to be there for his daughter even though he desperately wants to be. 
Um, and then you have to kind of sit there and you're bearing witness, but I'm sure you're also kind of quite, um, there is an emotional toll, I guess, that you're feeling as you sit there. What's it like to kind of hear people have real conversations rather than just the, you know, oh, I'm busy. Yeah, I'm busy doing stuff, you know. <laughs> What's it's it like? In, well, I don't, I don't want to be cliche, but it, it, in every way possible, it's incredibly humbling. Um, not only to witness that, but to have someone allow you to witness that. And um, I think it comes, what sort of, we always remember it, it comes down to a much bigger purpose. And it's certainly not about me. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be able to do that and to be able to be a part of that. And every time I sort of see the work that all of the biographers do, or and I see Julie and Robin, I just feel really proud that the service exists and that I've been able to kind of take part in it because it's one of those things where I wish that every hospital in the country had a service like this um, because I think that everyone deserves that at the end of their life to be able to reflect, to be able to find that clarity, to be able to find the comfort in knowing that your story and your feelings and your life is going to be passed on. I'm Justine Toe, and this is Soul Search on ABC RN. I'm speaking to Alice Matthews, and we're talking about capturing someone's story before they die, and the conversations about life that happen when someone is on their deathbed. I asked Alice whether it was clear that everyone, right at the end of their lives, craved a sense of meaning. Definitely, I think that's a very human thing. I guess whether you're dying or not is to find meaning. And, of course, a lot of the clients that I've spoken to, all of them really, have found that meaning in, in relationships mm. and, and their children or their, their families. It's never really been an overt sense of, I want this to matter, I need this to matter. It was just almost an, a natural process of being able to find the things that have mattered most. I think more so than searching for the meaning in their life, it, it's through this process, they find it and are able to see that clearly, I think. Mm. Can I ask, what's your sense of where people um, were spiritually at, the, at that point of their life? Do people start talking about what happens after death? Do you feel that people are angry at God, you know, even if they don't necessarily think he exists? Does the talk go in that direction? Um, it hasn't really in my experience. Um, by the time that I am working with them, there is a certain level of acceptance, I think. Um, that's not to say that there's not been anger and, and you know, a sense of injustice that it, it's, it's happening. Um, but a lot of the time I, when I've seen them, there is an acceptance and, and that's why they have decided to write their biography uh, because of that profound sense of knowing. Some people aren't ready to do that and and are offered the service and say, no, I'm not ready for that yet. So when they are ready, there is a sort of acceptance that has come with it. I remember certainly for my first client, there was a lot of, not there was not anger at God at all, but there was a sort of comfort in Mary McKillop. And, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> Mary's my girl. Yeah. Of, yeah, Mary's <laughs> my girl. I'm going to go see my girl. Um, and I had a, a Jewish client once that... Um, 
the comfort there was very much in the traditions that he had in his family and knowing that those traditions would live on and be passed on. That was where the comfort came from there. Mm. When you present that bound book of photos and memories um, of, you know, the, the story of someone's life and often... Is it, is it right that, that it's told in first person? So you as the author really do fade into the background. It's, it's an, I did this, I did that. What, what effect does that have on people to just receive that? It's, I think it's really, I think it's really fundamental. I can, I can remember handing over the first biography and, and what we do is sometimes do a bit more research. They might mention a school or a building or a home and we might be able to find a, a picture of that that they didn't have. Um, or they might mention a poem that they loved and we'll sort of track that down and pop it in the biography as well. And just seeing, you know, their faces as they go through the book is quite incredible. I know for another, like for another client, it's been, it wasn't handed to the client themselves, but his family. And that for them was a really big emotional moment mm. uh, because it also meant that it was the end of a process that allowed them to sort of keep talking and, and speaking about him and, and keeping him alive in that sense. So that process coming to an end in, in and of itself was also uh, a big deal as well, I think. Yeah. Do you think this work has affected the way you approach life now? Absolutely. When, when you meet people who are so graceful in the face of death and the hardest experiences of their lives... I think it absolutely does affect me, yeah. Alice, I believe you were pregnant with your last mm. client as you were sitting by their bedside. Has this work shaped how you want to live your life? You know, you're, you're sitting there, you're carrying within you um, your baby who's now born. Um, yeah, what does it mean to, to do this work and have it affect you and, and have it affect how you want to live? I think it always it always comes down to perspective when you are always are constantly bearing witness to, I guess, mortality in a lot of ways, your life gets put into perspective. And I think it sort of makes me think a lot about if, if it were me sitting here writing my biography, what would I say? And what would I want to pass down to my daughter? And that's actually quite a hard thing to think about because um, sometimes it comes with a profound sadness. Like if I was faced with not being able to see her grow up, like, mm. gosh, how do you even, how do you even grapple with that? Yeah. I know all the parents need to kind of take a moment now. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's about just trying to do what you can with what you have and be there for her, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you think a lot about legacy, which is something that I didn't really think about before. And it's been incredible to see what these clients leave behind because they have often always actually led such rich lives. And even if they don't think there's something to pass on, there's always lessons. And, you know, whoever's reading your biography is going to see it as a gift, I think. Yeah, it's like as you were saying before, um, there are no ordinary lives, just uncelebrated ones. And yeah. what a beautiful way to celebrate someone's yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. And and in the end, that is what it becomes. And while there's there is a lot of sadness, there is also a celebration in remembering all of the things that people have done with their lives and all of the adventure and 
knowing that they're going to be known through this book and through this biography, that the person they were is going to be remembered in the way that they want. That's Alice Matthews, journalist and volunteer with the Sacred Heart Community Palliative Care Biography Service. You're listening to Soul Search with me, Justine Toe, on ABC RN and the ABC Listen app. We're talking about end-of-life stories in a culture that's rather mute about death. Meanwhile, are you in the mood for a bedtime story? Well, get tucked in, snuggle up. The lamp is on and the shadows are playing on the wall. We can't tell you the entire story, but here are the basics. Jeff is married to Betty and they live on a farm. And he was a rather sad man, but he always looked sad. He wasn't as sad as he looked. He just didn't smile a lot and didn't laugh very often. In fact, he hardly laughed at all. This is a story made up by Don Watson. You know him as the historian, author and speechwriter, but he also makes up stories for his two boys. Like this one, where at Betty's prompting, Jeff goes on to rescue a beetle from the fireplace, a beetle which eventually takes up residence in Jeff's hat. And he went out for his usual rounds, and as he was walking, he heard this sound of sort of music. There was a, and it was the cricket or whatever sort of beetle it was, making this lovely sound. So nice was the sound that, despite himself, Jeff found himself whistling to it. Well, he did that all day. He whistled away. And when he came in for his lunch, he took his hat off carefully, put it on top of the fridge, and uh, <clears throat> the beetle just sat there. She said, has taken a shine to you, that beetle? He said, what? She said, that beetle, that really likes you. And she said, he said, yes, yes, it does. Now, for weeks afterwards, he was attached to this beetle and everywhere it went, it sang and he whistled or he whistled and it sang. And suddenly, Jeff's face began to take on a smile and he became sort of known as Whistling Jeff when he went into town to buy a few groceries. Instead of just muttering, he said, good morning to everybody. And he, he whistled up and down the street and the beetle stayed with him. And Betty couldn't believe her luck. After all these years of being married to him, married to a sad person, she was suddenly married to a happy person. Well, it happened that some good things come to an end, or almost to an end. Because Jeff was driving along in his tractor one day and there was suddenly a whoosh and a magpie swooped down and when he looked at his hat, which had fallen off under the magpie's rush, his beetle was gone. Well, if Jeff had been a sad old bloke before, he was a really sad old bloke now. I know it's cruel to interrupt a story midway, but we're going to leave you hanging. You'll have to tune in to the end of the show if you want to hear what happens next. Just as we hate it when a story is interrupted, we often feel as though death cuts lives short. In fact, the reason we have Don's bedtime story at all is because at one point in 2018, he was so sick that Chloe Hooper, Don's partner, 
asked him to record some of the stories he'd tell his sons. Chloe reflects on that incredibly difficult year for her family in her book, Bedtime Story. It's part memoir, part meditation on story, children's literature and death. And it was all sparked by Don's grim diagnosis, one that left Chloe, an author herself, lost for words. Don was diagnosed in in March 2018 and I guess uh, probably lots of people have this experience that they, they wake up and they think that the day will sort of look similar to the day before and the day before that and you have some sense of what the future will, will look like um, and I think that a diagnosis of an aggressive cancer makes you stop and realise how little control we actually have Mm. and that the future is a kind of imaginary concept. I guess the, the wrestle with language was really around how we were going to tell our then uh, six and three year old sons, Tobias and Gabriel about his health and, and what this might mean for the future. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I found your coping mechanism very recognisable, right? In the face of that potential loss of control, the uncertainty about what the future holds, you kind of dive into the research, right? You want to you find the perfect book to help your young boys grapple with the situation, uh, possibly losing their dad. Uh, like now that it's a couple of years down the track, when you look back on that time, how do you see yourself your 2018 self, trying to find the answer you were looking for? Well, I had this instinct almost to swat, which was that I was going to um, go to the shelf and find the perfect book that I would be able to read to my children, which would neatly explain to them mortality. All of the questions would be answered around this issue, which no adult really understands either. And I thought if I read widely and and deeply enough about children's literature and, and death, that I would somehow, I suppose, be able to control the story that was going on around me. Yeah, I think that's a very recognisable approach. It's the type A approach to life, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, what really struck me about this book is that I can feel the love and the anxiety over how you help your kids be okay through all of this in every page. And I suppose the parenting deal is to protect your kids. But as this book makes so powerfully clear, no parent can, can protect their child from death. But... You know, I found it really interesting, your meditations on story. And I want you to spell out for us, what is the power of story to kind of beat back the darkness, to render it, you know, intelligible? The right story can help us find uh, a path through the forest. It it can help us take our straw and, and weave it into gold. And quite quickly, I realized that storytelling and and perhaps restoring this situation would be a way to help us through the electricity and and potential of once upon a time might be a way for us to light light the dark. Mm. And I was so struck by um, your search, which shows how a number of authors, children's authors even, 
uh, have lost a parent or a significant person to them. I was in tears thinking of Roald Dahl. You write of him that he lost his seven-year-old and he begins uh, writing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory soon after, limp with despair. I think you're quoting someone. So there is an experience of deep loss, but there is a kind of restoring going on as well. So it's not as though writing, I guess, is a cure, but it's some kind of comfort. I think that is right. I think that that writing did offer Dahl in, in that circumstance a kind of path through the forest. That's his description of being limp with despair. Mm, right. Of course, of course, he'd he'd also lost his father as a, a very young child, and I had gone to the bookshelf looking for stories that would would help the kids. And of course, there are a lot of stories about orphans and and their adventures and and triumphs. But then I started to look at the lives of the storytellers, and I was struck that over and over again there were iconic children's authors had actually suffered a childhood bereavement themselves, from the Brothers Grimm to Hans Christian Andersen, Francis Hodgson Burnett, Dahl, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. And so it made me realize actually that perhaps an ingredient of enchantment is actually grief and um, that perhaps what I was looking for was actually ac- embedded in all of the stories that 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 surround us. Yeah, um, didn't you? In the book, I think you quote Tolkien. You say that for him, fairy tales were ultimately about the escape from death. So that does that link uh, of enchantment and grief. Uh, well, it connects the two, as you've just said. I guess that these a lot of a lot of fairy stories we know of in a Western tradition actually were recorded shortly after the Black Death had swept through Europe. And so these tales were told for entertainment, for instruction, and also for consolation. And I suppose that the magical properties that appeal to to Tolkien, he loved fairy stories, were a balm to him in some really difficult childhood times. Mm. And I guess the the work that he created, which was also, um, you know, uh, very much involved uh, escaping death and, you know, it was also a way for him to, he, he wrote explicitly about it was actually a way of him uh, recapturing his childhood before he was orphaned. Gosh, it's powerful, isn't it? Did you, before all this, did you have any sense that this was a key part of writing or was it only through this whole experience that that part of the world has opened up for you? I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I've always been interested in, in myth and I've always been interested in, in the purposes of storytelling and I suppose I've been interested particularly in, in, in how in documenting a story can be really important historically. But I think this gave me a, a different appreciation of the way that actually we're wired to tell stories. We tell stories about our own survival as a species and, and also, you know, we pass down our most important information to those who we feel and consider most important to us, our children, through these stories. And and the structure of the stories, you know, often is the same around a lot of cultures and the preoccupations with these stories 
often is interlinked. And yes, I do now look at the world differently. I do look at the world constantly in the the sort of uh, metric is often stories for me. Mm. Now, as you begin your search on what adults have previously told children about death, there are these words that you write. You say, in the beginning, there was an adult and a child in the dark. And just that somehow there's something about that that reminded me of the way that a well-known creation story begins, right? In the beginning, God created. And Mm. in that story, Mm. God creates through the words, right? That's right. He uses words to give form to the void. That's right. So I want to ask you, are authors the gods, if you like, of the stories they write? Is there a connection there? What a fascinating idea. I I suppose that um, authors do take lump and clay and they, um, you know, try to make characters. And I suppose uh, authors also try to create worlds and often though it takes longer than seven days. (laughs) Well, you know, you mentioned seven days. I believe you and Don both had some contact with faith influences growing up, even if these didn't stick as you became adults. Uh, when you're navigating such a, a horrifying and scary diagnosis, do those influence reappear and or do you kind of bounce off them when you're navigating death? Well, I, I perhaps had a, a, a more romantic idea of a death. I would say that I'm, I'm agnostic and I, I'm not sure what, what happens to us afterwards because, I, I, to be honest, it does feel as though... It is storytelling in a way because nobody really knows. Don probably had a, a harder line about not believing that some part of us lives on. And um, I think that in that moment probably envied those of faith who did feel um, more certain that there would be an afterlife. But the, you do have a stray reference in the book uh, where you describe Don as once a committed atheist and then yes. you then say, he still is an atheist, but a sceptical one. <laughs> so fill that in for me. Like, is this the softening? Is this the, the brush with death that has produced that softening? Perhaps that's the case. I think that if Don were in, in on this conversation, he might say the old line about, about fairies. You know, I don't believe in them, but they're there. When Don's mother actually died the following year at 99, he felt her presence in ways he he hadn't expected to. But I really, I I shouldn't be answering for him on this one. We'd need to get a party line and and get his perspective. Yeah, no, I do understand. And I do think it's, they're quite personal things as well, aren't they? (laughs) They are. But then you wrote about it, so (laughs) so I'm asking. (laughs) Now, uh, let me ask you this then. Um, At one point, Tobias, your then six-year-old, he's a very bright, precocious child, really, he sounds like. At that point of the story, he's reading about ancient Egyptian burial practices, right? Yes. And many yes. of these, of course, are in preparation for, so the ancient Egyptians believed, the afterlife, okay? Yes. Then he sends you a great question. What if there's not an afterlife? So, you know, a lot of parents are going to have to field similar questions like this. <laughs> Can you give us an insight into how you answer such a question, particularly if you're an agnostic, as you say? Well, that's right. And I mean, you can feel yourself fumbling in the dark, trying to find a happy ending to the story. I mean, it does, you do sort of 
fall back on all your storytelling instincts in this situation. And I read an advice book early on, which really urged parents to work out their own theories on on death and what happens afterwards because, of course, children will ask this question and uh, you do need to have a somewhat coherent answer, even if the answer is I don't know. But I think that being in this experience forces an adult to to think, what do I believe? And we went through various cultural ideas of what might happen in an afterlife Indigenous Australians believing your soul will return to your homeland or from my cultural background, the idea that you will uh, ascend to heaven. But he also was aware that that no one actually has returned from the dead uh, and so we don't entirely know. Well, nobody that we know, let, let me put it that way. Yeah, you do. There is a reference as well to Jesus Christ as the kind of Western figure who who apparently did return from the dead. But, you know, it would well, be convenient right. if he turned he is, up he, today to he, <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> it would be it would be great if he came today. He, you know, there there are these astonishing stories across cultures of heroic figures who have visited the underworld or the land of the dead and returned with some information or, or knowledge that then helps humankind. And this is a very sort of common trope. And of course, Jesus Christ, his story does connect to these ancient stories. And um, yes, he is, he is very well known today. Hmm. The 2022 census reported that almost four in 10 Australians consider themselves as of no religion. Now, I wonder, Chloe, do you have any sense of what that means for the stories we tell about death if that no religion category is is here to stay? It's very interesting to think about because, I mean, the, the you know, the positive side of religion does provide rituals that are you know, have been used over generations and, and sometimes millennia to deal with death, to find ways to incorporate the passing of our loved ones, you know, in, into our lives. And I think that we are living in a culture which we turn away from thinking about death as much as, as possible. Um, we find it very confronting to think about our own extinction, but we also can't cope with the extinction of animals on on our continent or ecosystems. Mm. And I think that there is a spiritual void that we, we live with. Traditionally, of course, Christian religions have given souls to humans rather than animals and created a kind of split that means that we often don't privilege nature and the natural world and we think of human accomplishment as being the sort of um, humans as being the heroes in our stories and I think that in terms of storytelling we need to look much more at ourselves as being part of nature. Mm, As part of one big system perhaps, one big story. Yeah, One big story, that's right. I'm Justine Toe, and you're listening to Soul Search, where we're encountering death through story. Twelve days before Christmas in 2018, Don's story took a turn no one was expecting. 
Don had been diagnosed in March with an aggressive leukemia and initially it was unclear that there would be any treatment that would work and by the end of the year he was actually in remission. Uh, We were extraordinarily lucky to have great doctors. Don was extraordinarily lucky and our kids and and me. But right until that, that last appointment with the oncologist, I didn't actually think that our story was going to have this plot turn. And I guess it can make you believe in in miracles. So I I am a believer. I'm not a believer in any organized system of religion, but I uh, I do believe that miracles can happen. Yeah. I don't want to in any way sort of diminish the medical miracle that this was, but moments like this, like you write, we were handed this gift, right? You really, you, this is, these are your words. It does feel like a gift. It does feel like a happy ending, right? I mean, obviously not, not, not to life itself, but, but to this story, to bedtime story. And I want to ask you, does this book actually exist because Don's story turned out that way at that point of life? Well, it would have been a very different book I'd have written if I was writing about raising two children on my own. And I'm acutely aware, and and Don is acutely aware, um, that for a lot of people that is the way their story turns. And and the reality also is that we don't know what the future holds. None of us do. And, you know, the storyteller might have to change. Um, the, The hero might not make it to the end. I mean, I guess any story, it's about framing, isn't it? You can end any story and, and, and make it appear happy. But we certainly feel that each day is now a gift. And I think we, we do have to actually sing out to, to modern science. More and more often, people get extra time because we know so much about these cancers. But I guess I would also say we, we spend an enormous amount of money saving ourselves while all around us we we are letting our reef bleach and our yeah. river system <laughs> die and we we prioritize you know a, a particular form of life you yes, know our and own. human life yeah yeah you write that don's brush with death has actually changed him and it kind of it made me remember uh frodo after the ring is destroyed <laughs> in a sense, like I mean, not I mean, it's I don't obviously there aren't strict parallels going on there. But but how does it how does it change people? You've mentioned about a little bit about how it's changed you. I, I think to to go back to an old storyline, the hero doesn't uh go to the land of the dead and, and come back to the land of the living without being changed and it is grueling it's grueling to be unwell and to go through sometimes really difficult chemotherapy i guess once you are, i don't know this personally but once you have uh looked closely at the possibility of your own extinction i think you see the world differently mm. chloe what's it been like to speak about the book now like I'm wondering, and I and I'm sorry if this is the case, but does it reopen the wounds? Do you know that you felt at the time, or does each retelling help to maybe even kind of try and have more control over it? 
Well, I think that we're we're living in incredibly existential times. Uh, COVID has has changed a lot of people's expectations of of what their day to day life is going to look like, what health looks like. Uh, there are sort of wars raging. It's a, a complex time politically. But I guess that one of the things that got me through our difficult experience was finding uh, this joy in in children's stories and and remembering the books that I'd read and loved as a child, and then rereading to my kids. And I and I don't think. Uh, children's books are only for people with children. It's a precious period of reading that really does inform us for the rest of our lives. And I think that I I don't find it traumatic talking about this experience or talking about how we might open up conversations about mortality. Because I think if you can talk about death and if you can talk about it with yourself and with kids, you're actually saying, how can we lead the best life possible? And that's a very rich conversation. But I think that these stories that are full of magic and wonder uh, and, and, and with a dollop of grief, often they can give us ballast in a hard times. Mm. So, Chloe, obviously this happened to both of you. It happened to your family. But when you're in a relationship with another writer, who gets to write the book about it? Who, well, you know, who, does the story belong to someone? I do feel that this was a, a high noon moment in our relationship where uh, a standoff. A, do you mean? That, that's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We were we were in a in a western on a street, and there was a, a competition to see who would pick up the pen first. And um, of course, Don was at a disadvantage and uh, I I started writing and, you know, there, there was a moment where um, he, he warily admitted that uh, he, it was a relief to, to, to not have to, to write, write it himself. Of course, he would have written a very different book, but um, he, he is, um, he is a big supporter of this one. You've made such a beautiful contribution to how we can try and find the words to kind of grapple with these big things. And I wonder, have you written the book that you were looking for? (laughs) Well, I think that often that is what authors are trying to do on one level. I love looking at this book because it's got beautiful images by Anna Walker, who's um, such an incredibly talented illustrator. It is a book that I hope one day my children will take off the shelf and, and maybe understand a little bit more about what has been a pivotal time in, in our lives. So ultimately it will be a, a, a bedtime story for them. I think it will, especially because, as I said, the, the, the love for family, the love for children, the desire to protect them, it just pulses through every page. Thank you so much, Chloe. Thank you. Chloe Hooper's book is Bedtime Story. Now let's pick up the story of Jeff mourning for his beetle. Betty tries to console him, but it doesn't work. Very miserable he was, and he was miserable for several weeks. Then one day, as he was walking back along the driveway, something landed on his shoulder. And he looked, and it was the beetle. The only thing that was different about the beetle was that it was missing one leg. 
somehow it had escaped the magpie, but it had lost a leg in doing it. This meant that it couldn't whistle any longer because beetles make this noise by rubbing their back legs together, I think. It couldn't whistle, but it stayed with him, and he was overjoyed, although he said, you poor little fellow, you've lost your leg. And he went inside and he said to Betty, look, he's come back, he's come back. She said, oh, that's lovely. But he said, look, he's lost his leg. He can't sing anymore. And Betty said, well, you'll have to sing to him and whistle to him. He can't do it, but he's come back to you, so you've got to keep him happy. Well, Jeff did. Everywhere he went, even more than he used to, he whistled all the time because all he wanted to do was keep the beetle, the beetle happy. Well, keeping the beetle happy kept him happy and kept Betty happy, kept the whole town happy, really, because every time they saw him coming, they knew he was coming from miles away because he was such a good whistler. Well, not quite miles. But anyway, that's the story of Jeff and Betty and the beetle. There you go, a bedtime story from Don Watson. I'm Justine Toe. Thanks for joining me for Soul Search. And big thanks to Rowan Salmond and Nadiat El Ghali for producing and Roy Huberman for sound engineering. You might notice there's a lot of talk about death at RN lately. If you're in the mood to continue that conversation, the Philosopher's Zone considers whether or not we should fear death. Because if we cease to exist, then what is there to be afraid of? And yet, death still undoes us. Check out The Philosopher's Zone via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And don't forget to tune in to Soul Search next week. See you then. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.